Hey there, you're listening to Don't Be an Asshole, a spiritual guide. It's a podcast where we talk about life, music, and spirituality. As we get into this, I just want you to know that it's not about getting you to believe what I believe. It's about asking you to ask yourself why you believe what you believe. Hey there, everybody. It's time for another episode of Don't Be an Asshole, a spiritual guide. We're going to continue my conversation with Ryan Beatty today. Really looking forward to this part two conversation. We get to go a little bit deeper into his story, what he went through, and how he responded to that. Again, to reiterate, when someone goes through something, you have a choice on how you're going to respond to that. And there's a lot of different facets. There's minutia involved, but it boils down to two macro choices. Are you going to be an asshole or are you not going to be an asshole? And I believe in the face of the events that Ryan went through, he showed a grace and a tenacity and basically a great example of how not to be an asshole, which luckily for us, this is Don't Be an Asshole, a spiritual guide. All right. So, I mean, at that point, it's like, all right, if I don't, if I don't do this, I'm an outright disobedience to God. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I got home that next week. I met with the national church planning director. I called the church planning director in South Texas, whom I had used to work for. Uh, and I spoke with, and I spoke with my boss and I said, listen, this is what's going on in my heart. And so over the next, uh, over the next 11 months, uh, I transitioned out. And uh, moved to moved to South Texas in uh, August of 2010. Launched my church in August of 2011. This year, the church will be eight years old. In August of 2014, Carissa and I got married. Mm-hmm. And then in February, we transitioned to where she became the lead pastor, <clears throat> and I stayed as like the founding pastor and a and a, on the on the advisory board. But I work with. Uh, started working with church planters specifically out of our church because uh, of my original launch team, which was not large. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I was not a big launch. I was not a successful launch. I did not know. Nobody knew in 2010 about urban church plants, what we know now oh, about right. urban church plants, right? In 2010, they were still telling us if you'll do like the cookie cutter model that works like gangbusters in the suburbs in the urban world, it'll work just the same. Well, that's flat out nonsense. Right. It just will not. You need 10 times as much money for one tenth as few people when you're planting in a, in an urban environment as you do the suburbs. Oh, definitely. You know, so I got, you know, I had a whopping 38 people on my launch Sunday and a whopping eight the next Sunday, you know? <laughs> and, uh, so, but by that point, four years in, when Carista took over as the pastor, we had taken my original launch team and one couple, we planted in another inner loop neighborhood in Houston and our church was the mother church. And, and then we took another couple and planted them in Beaumont, Texas, which is about 80 miles east. And so, mm-hmm. so out of our little church, we planted two daughter churches and and we're named uh, one year we were like number two per capita missions giving, you know, in our district. And, um, you know, like we were just 
audacious generosity was just a part of who we were. Uh, and so, um, so that's what I had been doing the last several years. Uh, while, while Carista pastored the church, I've been working with our church planners. Now, this whole time, we've also had to be bivocational. Right. Because, again, urban, inner loop, it's just a reality. And for my non-pastoral <laughs> ministry listeners, that means you have to work a different job besides be just a pastor. Like, mm-hmm. you know, most of my listeners have no idea what the heck we're talking about. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> well, listeners, um, in some denominations, they have a lot of money and they share it with their church planners. The AG does not have a lot of money. And what they do have, they don't share with their church planners. <laughs> so I worked uh, for the Y. I worked in a smoothie shop. And then uh, starting the second year of our church, uh, I was offered a job as the chaplain of an Episcopalian day school. Okay. And uh, I was offered that job because a year earlier, I had met with the priest to talk with her about us using one of their facilities for our worship. They ended up connecting us with the place we ended up going, but I maintained a collegial relationship with her that grew very strong. And then she needed a chaplain for their day school. So they invited me to do that. So I did that for four years, served as the chaplain of this day school. It was a great experience. I learned a lot about uh, liturgical churches Mm-hmm. and how not all churches approach theology the same way, uh, right. which was beautiful. You know, it just, it was great to learn and great to experience and begin to incorporate some uh, spiritual disciplines and spiritual practices into, um, into my life that weren't there. So I think, it, I think where it started was like incorporating seasons of the church. So uh, the season of Lent, the 40 days that lead up to Easter mm-hmm. as a time of fasting and introspection, the season of Advent, the four weeks that lead up to Christmas as a season of expectation. And for some, for Pentecostals, like we're all about the return of Jesus. Like right. that's a big thing with us. Well, come to find out, so are the liturgical churches. And the way they do it is they celebrate Advent. That's four Sundays where they say, we are anticipating Christ's return by looking back to when he came the first time. Right. (laughs) I know, man. I grew up in uh, a big Pentecostal church in Oklahoma. I mean, it's like liturgy was just about looked down on, you know? It was like, yes, controlling. It's uh, this or that. I don't remember, but... Spirit I, I can't move in that. Yeah, I, I I didn't know what Advent was till just a few years ago. Mm-hmm. I never celebrated Lent because you know I'm like, well, what do I need Fat Tuesday for? It's year round, baby. Yeah. You know, I don't I don't need to per, you know binge on sin and then purge it out on Ash Wednesday. It's like you just stay holy year round. Uh, yeah, I I find a lot more uh, peace in knowing that everybody's kind of in it together. We all believe the same thing, but these sects are like, no, we got it right. And then this one's like, no, no, we got it right. And then I'm like, oh my God, I have no idea who's got it right. So I think it's the idea that unity does not mean uniformity. Right. 
You know, we can be unified without being uniform. And that, I, I think that's pretty, I think that's pretty beautiful. And I think that's, that's real Holy Spirit work. Yeah. Um, I also think that that shows up in the lives of Jesus's disciples. I mean, Matthew was a government sellout tax collector and, uh, and then Simon was a terrorist, you know, yeah. I'm a zealot. Uh, those two, those two could not have been more polar opposite in their political views and their approach to life. Mm-hmm. And yet they both found brotherhood and acceptance around the campfire with Jesus. Right. Yeah, I think there's something to be said about uh, how Jesus did things. I don't think you have to be a Christian to appreciate Christ and I appreciate that. Uh, how he handled human beings. Because, I mean, at the end of the day, like I always say, it all boils down to love God, love people, and don't be an asshole. Yeah. And I think that's the central message of Christ. You know, hey, Simon, don't be an asshole. Yeah. Um, my sheep. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's basically down to that. You got the zealot, you got the tax collector, you got the fisherman, all of these people from all these, just like you just said. And Christ was at this, and nobody was like, well, because in, you know, 2018, 2019, what year are we in now? I don't even remember. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's all moving so fast. But this 20th and 21st century mindset that you and I, have grown accustomed to everyone views Jesus through their own optic, through their own lens. And whatever is most important to me is obviously what Jesus is. I had a kid in Chi Alpha who all he wanted to do is be, be a healing evangelist. And for him, he, he thought that Jesus's most pressing ministry was his healing ministry. That's how he got people's attention was through healing. And, uh, another, uh, ex coworker of mine was like, and he would say it over and over again that Jesus's most powerful ministry was his preaching ministry. Yeah, and people who are social gospel centric will say that Jesus, uh, the social aspect of how he did things, feeding the poor, and people who are all about miracles, they say that's the most important part about Jesus. Mm-hmm. People, people who see Jesus, you know, Republican Jesus, Democrat Jesus. Uh, you're frozen again. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay. All right. No, you were just really still. Was, wow. Just, that's, that's, that's really amazing because yeah. uh, in my acting yeah. class, it's like the thing they, they teach the most is stillness on camera. And I was like, I thought, I thought the screen froze up. That was, that was, that was, that was Drax stillness in Guardians of the Galaxy. <laughs> I'm moving yeah. so slow. You can't see it. I'm invisible. Yeah, that's, you. that's pretty, that's, Wow. But yeah, I just think people, and I tried to explain this concept before, and I've I've failed many times in explaining it, but how people see the Jesus they want to see, and then that person is the most, that Jesus is the most important aspect of Jesus. Yeah. And uh, whereas, you know, I'm like, you know, the way he treated people, I'm like the relational part of Jesus is the most important aspect of Jesus. But the thing is, Jesus is all of it. Yeah. He's the healer. He's the miracle worker. He's the philosopher. He's the teacher. He's the beatitudes. He's all of these things. And no, it's a perfect circle. None of it is more or less oblong or obtuse on, on the facet of who Jesus is. And that's why none of us could be Jesus is because all of us have a shadow 
on our on our soul, you yeah. know, that Jesus didn't have. You know, but, the uh, the two worlds that I've been living in over the last you know several years in the the liturgical liberal Christian world and then the conservative free church Pentecostal world. I think I've seen this a lot and I've seen to where it seemed to me like so many people in the conservative world, like their Jesus was the, uh, the go and sin no more Jesus. Right. And the, and the flipping tables over in the temple Jesus. Yeah. And they, they forget the, I, I, neither do I condemn you Jesus and the blessed of the meek and blessed of the poor Jesus. Yeah. But then on the flip side, so many of the liberal Christians I'm around, they're all about the, I don't condemn you, Jesus, and the blessed of the poor, blessed of the meek, Jesus, but they they ignore the go and sin no more, Jesus. Yeah. You know? And so there's this, uh, I, it's totally what you're saying. It, it I've seen this a lot as well. And um, it is, it Jesus can often be used as a, Jesus can often be used as a pawn for our own personal perspectives. Yeah. Um, yeah, I I think especially historical figures, they cast a long shadow, and right. and we try to we view everybody through the lens of what's appropriate now, and no matter what historical figure, you know, you could find out something about Michelangelo, and be like, oh my God, what an asshole. Yeah, and people uh, start taking down his paintings and yeah, and I, I don't chapel. Yeah, and I don't know. I mean, well, I mean, like Martin Luther. You know, I, apparently he had some issues with <laughs> being anti-Semitic. You know, yeah, he did not like the Jewish people, and that's a that's a big glaring issue. Yeah, but he's also the father of the Reformation. He also saw something that was completely. Like, you know, it's like, oh, you know, Peter's thigh bone is going to see us through this thing. Like, bullshit. (laughs) That has nothing to do with anything, you know? Yeah, for real. Or, you know, even more recent, uh, his namesake, Martin Luther King Mm. Jr., one of the greatest men the 20th century produced, cheated on his wife over and over again. Yeah. And does that take away the all the things he did for the civil rights movement? It does not. And it doesn't make him, uh, it makes him a flawed human being. But I know a lot of conservative whites who are like, oh my God, wouldn't you know it? Of course. That just makes total sense, doesn't it? Yeah. So, but we want to view or say someone uh, from the the, the late 1800s who might have had a a different view of either homosexuality or race relations or women voting than what we do now. They're the hell am I trying to think of their context, their social context determines so much about what you feel and believe and think that they weren't just evil people. They lived in an evil society, just like we live in an evil society and we're colored by the things that, that, that happened to us on all sides so in 50 years from now, people are going to look at me and you and our life and listen to these podcasts and be like, my God, what the hell is wrong with this guy? For real. You know, we're 
really doing the best we can, I, I think is the bottom line. And, and some of us are doing better than others. Yeah. You know, I look at sure. some people's life and go like, I kind of want that. And then I look at some pe- other people's life and I'm like, my God, I'm so much better than they are. <laughs> <laughs> that guy uh, sucks. Oh my gosh. How, how did that person make it in the 21st century? Yeah, for real. Well, okay, so you've, you've gotten me up to church planting, and yep. you've been working for the Episcopal Church. Yep. That's had to shape kind of some of your theology. It did. And how, moving forward, thinking maybe you wanted to leave some other things in the rearview mirror. Tell me about that. Well, so uh, what, it, what it caused me to do was, it, first of all, it caused me to be introspective about who I am and how I present myself. Okay. Because uh, when the priest invited me to be the chaplain, uh, I still needed to speak with the head of the school. Mm -hmm. And the head of the school uh, was a gay man who had been, who has now been with his partner for something like 40 years. Right. And, uh, and he's a life, a lifelong Episcopalian. And so we sat down and, Really, the first question he asked me was, he said, I don't know a whole lot about the Assemblies of God other than the fact that I wouldn't be welcomed in your churches. He said, so the question I have for you is, are you capable of loving the gay children in our school? Are you capable of loving the kids whose parents are gay? Right. Are you, are you even capable of loving and caring for them? Um, and, and man, like that was such a kick to my gut to think that whatever our theologies are, that we have presented them in such a way that my theo- that when my theology comes through, it comes through as I don't have the capacity to love people like you. Yeah, man, I, I was, I was so heartbroken and I told him, I said, absolutely. I said, I, I said, I said, that's got, I said, whatever my theology is in no way impacts my ability to love people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think he was real skeptical. Oh yeah. And, uh, <clears throat> and he had every reason to be, and the reality so many- is they hired me and got, a dozen emails, phone calls, et cetera, from parents in the school were like, what in the world did you just do hiring this guy? Right. He's never going to be the guy we need. He's never going to be the guy we want. And four years later, they cried when I left. And he and I have a wonderful relationship. Mm-hmm. I mean, a wonderful relationship. He's retired now. and But he and I have a wonderful relationship. And the same people who were really upset when they hired me, two or three of them sent me personal emails or came and spoke to me to my face when they announced that I was leaving and they apologized Mm -hmm. and said to me, you know, we were people who said this was a bad idea, but you've just been such a wonderful influence on our children and have served us so well. Thank you. Right. Um, And so, but, but I immediately from jump street had to say, okay, how am I presenting myself? Mm-hmm. How is whatever theology I have, whether I, you know, whether I believe homosexuality is a sin or not, whether I believe that Jesus is, is the only way to, is the only way to, to, 
to salvation, whether I believe the, the Bible is infallible and inerrant and authoritative, whatever it is that I believe, and, and down to my politics, am I presenting those things in such a way that those things become a barrier to other people to where those people think that I don't love them or don't right. have the capacity to love them? And if, and if that's what it comes, that that comes across that way, then I am wrong. Mm -hmm. Even if, even if my theology quote unquote is right, I am still wrong. Mm -hmm. I've, I've said this before, but I've never met someone whose uh, default statement is hate the sin and love the sinner who actually does. Right. Yeah. So it's. Because if the first thing you do is tell someone's like, well, I don't agree with your lifestyle, but I'm still going to love you anyway. It's like, well, the thing is you just put, you just put up this giant wall right there because someone's sexuality or their identity is their entire personality. And it's, if you're saying they can't separate like you can, or I can, or, or especially any conservative Christian in their brain can separate the human from the sex act because it's, face it, you know, sex is a dirty thing to most Pentecostals yeah. <laughs> and uh, the way, the way it's been presented, I was so scared to have sex for the first time that I was like, it was no problem to wait till I got married. Yeah. You know, I'm like, well, I'm not doing that. Yeah. So, for real. Um, it was just really, so it was all sex, not just gay sex or straight sex or, or whatever. I'm like, I'm not, I'm not going there, but we had this, this thing where it's, it's, it's. So, um, so I'll just say that coming out of that conversation with him, uh, one of the things that I began exploring early on while I was working for the Episcopalians was revising my understanding of incarnation theology. So uh, uh, understanding uh, why it is that Christ came and and not just why he came, but why he came the way he came why the way he came was important, what he did in his life, how he lived, how he experienced humanity, all of that became more important. Mm -hmm. And it became something that I thought more about and uh, became more mindful of. And, and, be, and I began to elevate <laughs> because growing up conservative Southern Pentecostal, it was the atonement and nothing else, you know? it was all about the atonement and the atonement was all we ever talked about. And it was all we ever considered. And I never lessened my view of the atonement or the importance of the atonement, but I started to elevate uh, my view of, and the importance of the incarnation Christ being one of us and all that it means for Christ to be one of us. Right. All that, all that he experienced hunger and sleepless nights and loneliness and broken hearts and stubbed toes, all those, you know, all those kinds of things that he experienced. And ultimately he experienced the full gamut of human life, which included rejection, violence, and death. Yeah. And what does it mean that the God of the universe experienced death like I experienced death. Not just that he experienced it for me. Mm -hmm. You know, the atonement is it's all about what Christ did for us. The incarnation meant that he did it like me. Right. Like it's not just that he did it for me. He did it like me. 
He did. He experienced death like I will one day experience death. He experienced heartache. He lost people that he loved like I have lost people that I love. Like he lived this full gamut of human life and he lived into it. And by living into it, he was able to love humanity in a way that creates this uh, pattern for me to follow, this person for me to emulate. And that was huge, particularly coming out of that question of, are you capable of even loving children of gay parents? Right. Yeah. Uh, you're going to give me an opportunity to come to Christ again tonight, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then I'll pass uh, an offering plate. Yeah. It's like, um, do, you, do you Venmo? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes, I do. Uh, I put that in the show notes for anybody who's <laughs> Oh my gosh. Well, that's part two down, and we have one or two or three more parts with Ryan left to go. So, hey kids, don't be an asshole. All right.